Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We got a good podcast here. This is gonna be a good one. Better put that chin strap on that weave. You don't want it. You don't want it blowing off. That's for sure. Got two good stories. Hope you guys love them. All right, here we go. Here's an email from California from a. Hollywood screenwriter, believe it or not. He didn't say whether I could use his name or not, so I don't think I will, but I've actually talked to him on the phone. He's a real interesting guy, and we talked about how he goes through the process of coming up with ideas and writing screenplays, and it was real interesting. But this story is about his cousin in in Louisiana. So it was a California boy writing about his cousin in, in Louisiana, or as we say, Louisiana. He writes, my cousin is a nurse in Rushton, Louisiana, although at the time she lived just outside the city in the little town of Chowderant. She lived in a trailer on her mother's property several hundred yards away from the main house. They have an acreage property set back in the woods not too far from the train tracks that run through the area. One night, my cousin had just finished her graveyard shift at the hospital in Rushton. She was tired after the long shift and was returning home to Childrent around 3 a.m. There have been several accidents on the road near her home where it comes across the train tracks, and the bushes and the woods near the tracks and the odd bend in the road can make it treacherous if drivers don't pay close attention. There are no railroad crossing signals on the road, and if you have your music too loud, you might not hear the train. More than one car has smacked into the train, which is always a losing proposition. She approached the tracks, and although she was exhausted, she was careful to come to a stop and crack her window a bit to listen for the train. There were no lights coming or train sounds coming down the tracks, and with her window cracked, she took the opportunity to light a cigarette while she stopped. As she put the cigarette into her mouth and fished around in her purse for a lighter, a huge hairy hand with a massive hairy forearm smacked palm first onto the driver's side area of the windshield, mere inches from her face. She let out a startled scream of terror. The darkness outside prevented her from seeing anything approach her car, 
The darkness outside and the lights from the dash inside also prevented her from getting a good look at her attacker. In any case, she didn't stick around to find out who or what it was. She mashed her foot on the gas and blasted down the road. She got home in no time and ran for the safety of her trailer. She concedes that she didn't see what smacked her window, only that it was a giant and the arm was covered in thick, dark hair. It could have been a man out near the train tracks in the woods at 3 a.m. in the dark, but she's convinced that it was a booger. We have spent many evenings on the porch playing cards at the main house and heard terrible screams come from the woods beyond the pond. All my cousins tell me it's a black panther they sometimes see in the area. And it certainly sounds like the scream of a big cat. The kind that sounds like the blood-curdling scream of a woman that ends in a roar. But now, I'm not so sure it is a panther. If your show has taught me anything, it's that Boogers and Bigfoot can make those same sounds. Either way, next time we visit, I won't be out walking around outside in the dark by myself. Thank you for your time. Keep up the great work. I love the Steve Lilly stories. Keep them coming. Dude, I love writing them. You and I talked about Steve Lilly over the phone. Some people say he's my alter ego. No, he's not. Steve Lilly is just a character. He's like, I put 10 or 20 guys I've known in my life together and I just stuffed them all in Steve Lilly and that's how he got to be how he is. But working on Steve Lilly number 10 now. Hope to have it out in the next week or two. So I keep getting emails and comments and you know, that's very flattering. I don't, I don't say those things like I'm bragging. I say those things in awe, that people actually like those stories. To me, they're so silly, but I, and I love writing them because it's like, I feel like a little kid when I'm writing them. When I tell you that there's, I get a lot of emails and comments on them, I'm saying that in, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Appreciation, gratitude, and thankfulness that you all enjoy those stories and that you know, the man who wrote this story that I just read, he's a screenwriter. When you have somebody read or hear your story and they like it, it that's better than a $100 bill. I guarantee you, to a, someone who wrote it, it's better than a $100 bill. So thank you all for enjoying Steve Lilly. I, I'm going to have another one out pretty soon. Anyway, let's move on to another story. The man who sent this email to me does not want his name revealed. And here's his story. I have two encounters to tell you. The events I will relate to you in this email happened in two states. It sounds crazy, but maybe I'm crazy. And sometimes I wonder. During the 1990s, I was a wildlife agent, and I was dealing primarily with problem wild animals that were causing problems in residential areas, on farms, or wherever there was an issue. I prefer not to name the state because at the time I was well known for the job that I did, and this story might refresh a memory and bring it back to me. But I can tell you that this took place in the rural mountain area in the northeastern United States. We were having a rabies epidemic, primarily in raccoons. Fur prices were down for two years, and the raccoon population exploded. 
the virus was spreading like wildfire. I was one of a handful of people that were given pre-exposure vaccines for rabies and were trained on handling and having animals tested for the disease. I was overwhelmed with calls and working seven days a week, and I was on call 24-7. When local citizens weren't calling me for help, the state police and other officials were calling me out. It seemed like this would never end. One fall evening, I believe it was mid-September, my wife and I had just sat down for dinner and the phone rang. My wife answered, It's for you again? I remember thinking, I hope it's not an emergency because I'm hungry. I could tell by the sound of the man's voice that he was irritated and anxious. I couldn't understand a word he said. I interrupted him and said that he needed to calm down because I couldn't understand him. What well, do you speak English? He said. I answered, yes, sir, but I am a little slow. He chuckled. That seemed to break the ice. He went on to tell me that he had either coyotes, a big cat, or maybe a bear taking his calves. The predator was walking right into the barn and taking the animals. This had been happening for two weeks. He started shutting the barn door, but the next day he would find it open and sometimes broken. I was eager to get back to my food, and I agreed to meet with him at his farm first thing the next morning. I arrived at the farm at 8 o'clock, and the farmer was still milking his cows. He told me that there was no incident last night, that he would be finished in an hour. I was welcome to have a look around the outside of the barn to see if I could find evidence from a predator, and he pointed out the damaged door that seemed to be the entry point. The calf pens were right next to it. It was hard to find prints around the barn. Any track that would have been left had been trodden down by cow hooves. The damage to the door looked a bit more like a bear had done it than a coyote or a cat, and it lacked the claw imprints or scratches that I would normally find. The bent metal rail across the top of the door looked like damage from a tractor. I couldn't see how a cow or an animal would do that. The farmer finished up his chores and caught up with me outside the barn, and he asked me what I had found. Well, I told him the cattle had trampled any evidence that I could use, and he asked what I thought about the door. Well, something big did that, I said, but I refrained from saying that one of his farmhands probably hit it with the tractor. He went on to tell me that some nights the coyotes were so loud that he couldn't sleep and other nights he could hear a big cat screaming on the hill. I followed him through the pastures and across two shallow streams and through a gate and then up the hill to a wood line where a clear pasture met the forest. From there we walked into the woods a hundred yards or so. He pointed to four dead calves that had been taken from his barn. The most recent had been taken yesterday. It laid in the leaves gutted. Something had consumed the organs but left the meat. That's not the way any wild animal that I know of would eat its kill. Domestic or wild dogs would usually eat the hindquarters first and then leave the rest if they had had enough. Nothing was adding up and there were no tracks to give me any indication of what this was. We kept walking and 150 yards away I found two more older kills that had been picked clean. 
Tracks covered the area, but they weren't from a coyote, cat, or a bear. It was what we and the wildlife division recognize as the brush wolf. Contrary to public belief, wild coyotes and domestic dogs do not interbreed. You have coyote packs, wild dog packs, and then you have the brush wolf. The brush wolf is believed to be an offshoot of the gray wolf and coyote. Before the gray wolf was extinct in the northeast, the populations were low. Nature finds a way, and scientists at the time believed that possibly the two natural enemies mated, creating a much larger coyote or a smaller wolf. We had these brush wolves come in weighing 140 pounds or better. That size dog would definitely be strong enough to haul a calf that distance before eating it. But that still didn't make sense as to why they ate the older kills down to the bone and then scattered the bones while, with the fresh kill, only guts and organs were eaten. But whatever the reason, it looked like a large healthy pack and they needed to be dealt with. At this time, we were not allowed to use the word brush wolf to a civilian. Coyote, coy dog, or some other name was fine. That was primarily to keep people from panicking and killing them off with the big bad wolf stereotype. When the packs got this big and brazen enough to start stealing cattle, we would go out and cut the numbers back. I told the farmer that it looked to be a large coyote pack in the area and I would do some tracking to find their habits and find the best place to set traps. I would be back in a day or two and we shook hands and he headed to the barn and I stayed in the woods. I was looking for the main highway they used to get around, and I found several excellent locations to place my sets. Brush wolves are smart, and it wasn't going to be a one-day project. I could see this taking a month to catch even five. And it was forecast to rain the next day, and that was the best time to set traps. I stopped by the farm on the way back and got permission to leave my spare coveralls that I had in my Jeep in the barn for the night. The smell of the cattle soaking into the material would help me cover my human scent with a scent that they were obviously not afraid of. It was cloudy with heavy dark gray clouds when I showed up at the farm the next morning. I was excited thinking that it would be a perfect time to make my sets. I stopped by the barn and put my cow scented coveralls on and I walked around in cow manure with my rubber boots, the whole time thinking that my wife was going to make me change outside when I got home. I placed my sets in all the places that I had marked the day before, and I made a couple of extra sets around the last killed calf, just in case they should come back and finish their meal. Just as I finished up, it started raining. The rain lasted for several hours and I hoped the rain had knocked off my scent, and maybe I would have a catch the next day. That rarely happens, but it does happen. The next morning, I woke and got my breakfast and coffee and headed to the farm. The farmer met me at the barn and said he'd lost another calf that night. After apologizing and telling him that it won't be long now, I headed through the pastures into the woods. I walked along my sets as far away from them as I could and still be able to see whether or not I had anything. The first line of seven sets were untouched. It was the same with the next line of sets, absolutely nothing. 
There was no sign of a fresh kill either. That night, I thought that I must have messed up somewhere and these canines were on to me. The next morning, I stopped by the farm and the farmer said it was a good night. No animals had been taken. I figured that the traps would likely be empty as well. The first trap I walked up on was dangling high up in a thick water brush. I looked closer and I could see something had tripped it and been caught. There was animal hair scattered around the area. Whatever I caught had been ripped from the trap, though, and from the way the trap hung up in the brush, I was thinking it was a big cat that had taken advantage of the trapped animal. The other traps were empty, and I kept smelling a strong, rotted flesh septic smell in the area. I figured it was likely from the dead calves after the rain, and possibly the farmer spread manure in that upper pasture. I looked around a bit, but I couldn't find anything to be the lone source of the smell, so I forgot it. On day three, I headed back to the farm and right to the sets without stopping to talk to the landowner. Two traps hung high up in the brush again, just like yesterday. Something wanted my catch more than I did. No sign of what was stealing my trapped animals or where it was taking them, and it didn't make sense for a big cat to do the exact same thing three times in a row. I suppose if a pack is big enough and hungry enough, they would attack their own. That does happen, but typically only during a hard freeze, and it was only September. And on this day, the smell was back, but it was much stronger, so much so that it made my stomach a bit queasy. I saw a good spot for some sets on my way up the hillside just above the stream, and I figured I would put some fresh sets there tomorrow to give me a bit of a break from the overwhelming smell of rotting flesh and manure. On day four, the traps were empty and undisturbed. The smell was still overwhelming, but it seemed to come and go. It was windy, and I could hear branches breaking in the distance. I didn't think much about that and I set off to put out the traps in the new location. I found a spot where I was sure coyotes were hanging out. It was across the stream and up a steep bank that was 25 to 30 feet tall. So with my 100-pound backpack on and a 12-gauge shotgun loaded with buckshot in my hand, I waded across a 12-inch deep stream and I started up that bank. The roots that dangle from the bank wall were what I used to lift myself to the top. And halfway up there, that smell hit me again. It was coming from above me. I wasn't able to see anything but dirt wall, and I assumed one of the dead calves was left at the top of the bank, so I kept climbing. Finally at the top, I raised myself to a standing position, ready to go to work. I was brushing the trash off my clothes when I looked around expecting to see that dead calf laying close by. But instead, standing a few feet away was a giant, black-colored Sasquatch. It growled at me, and I felt that growl through my body and into my toes. The edge of the bank was just behind me, and when I took a step back, I fell back into the ravine, and I landed on the rocks of the stream bank flat on my back. That fall crushed my wicker backpack, and the contents saved me from breaking anything. Without that pack, 
I'm sure I would have smacked my head on those rocks and been injured. In addition, I was lucky that nothing pushed through the pack that would impale me. The shotgun had survived the fall too, and it lay a few feet away. And after I moved past the what the hell phase, I shimmied out of the backpack straps and I took up the shotgun. The creature stood looking over the ledge at me. He was hacked off and he continued to growl. There was no doubt this was a male. Immediately, I knew my 12-gauge wouldn't hurt this thing, so I fired a shot over his head and he just stood there looking at me. After two more shots, he looked around like he could have cared less and then he walked out of my sight. My heart was racing and all that I could think was that I only had three shots left. If the first three shots didn't scare it off, I would put the next three right into its face. My thought was if I could blind him, there was a chance that I could get away. There is no way to know, but I would say this thing was eight feet tall and three and a half feet wide at the shoulders. Of course, at the bottom of the riverbank, looking up 30 feet, it looked like King Kong with a human face. Teeth, from what I could see, were two large fangs or eye teeth. The eyes were dark and bone-chilling evil. I got my stuff together and I headed out of there, leaving equipment I couldn't grab where it lay. The only form of communication that I had in my Jeep was a cellular bag phone that I hadn't had a signal for for miles. So I stopped by the farm on the way out and I told the farmer that I had to get going and that I'd be back to him. I didn't dare mention the encounter I had just experienced. Well, I went straight home. My back was hurting and I needed to make a phone call to my superior. I was trying to figure out a way to tell him what had happened without sounding like I needed mental help. I couldn't think of a way other than just straight up truth and I let the chips fall where they may. I told him that I needed to meet with him. He knew it was important and he agreed. It's the first time in several years that I asked for a meeting. Later that evening at his house, I told him the story. My superior said that he would meet me at the farm the next day and we would go from there. The next morning, we met at the farm. And here's what my superior told me. Here's the plan. I called my boss and told him the details that you told me. He called me back this morning and he said that you and I are going together and get your equipment and that we were to pull out of this job. Well, I immediately asked if I was fired and he reassured me that I was not being fired and they were sending a team out here to finish up where I left off. A team? I asked. He said, yeah, you're not crazy. They have a team trained to deal with this situation and they're going to take over. I gathered my equipment. My boss stood guard with a rifle. There was no incident, but we both caught a whiff of that horrible odor. On the way out, we stopped by the farm and I introduced my boss. He told the farmer I was needed on another job and that a team would replace me. And I never did find out what happened on that farm. I worked that same job for three more years, and I never ran into anything like that while working for them again. Now let me tell you about my second encounter. I'm going to try to make this one a little shorter than my long-winded first encounter. 
After the first encounter in the Northeast, I didn't have another encounter like that while I worked in that region. It wasn't until years later when I moved to the central Gulf Coast of Florida. I moved to Florida in 2008 and I set up my own business. Through a good customer, I was given permission to hog hunt some swampy land in the Spring Hill, west of US-19, only a few miles from the Gulf. My wife and two sons came along. They thought they might enjoy experiencing hunting at night for wild hogs. The property where we had permission to hunt had a small pond bordering the woods that connected to state land. The property already had two tree stands, and one of them was a two-seater. That would be where my wife and I would sit. A hundred yards south of that stand was another stand. It needed work, but with a few nails and some scrap wood, we had it fixed up, and my oldest son claimed that one. My youngest son had a climbing stand, and he found a spot near a pond that was full of tracks and rutted up ground. We were all set. We put feeders near each stand and kept them filled with corn for three weeks before we went hunting. I set three SkyPoint cameras out that sent pictures directly to my cellular phone. We had pigs coming in heavy almost every night and a bear that would stop by just before dawn. We hunted there with success once a week for two months. I was showing my sons the pictures that were coming in and there was still plenty of pigs, deer, and coyote, and of course, my bear in the mornings. We were looking forward to our Saturday hunt. Thursday came around, and there was nothing on the cameras. Friday, it was the same. I thought for sure, with all the activity we had been seeing, the batteries in the cameras must have been dead. So I went to the store Saturday morning to get some snacks and supplies for our Saturday hunt, and I picked up AA batteries for the cameras. We arrived at the hunting location just before dark. My wife and I were in the stand furthest from our truck. I replaced the batteries in my cameras before we got situated in the stand, and I gave each of my sons eight batteries to do the same. From our stand, we could hear something walking in the swamp, but we couldn't see what it was. It was either that bear or noisy hog walking around. It went just out of our sight around us where my son was sitting, and I sent my son a text telling him that I heard something go by and it was heading right for him, but I wasn't sure what it was. I copied my other son on the text, and he said he just heard something large heading my way, but it was coming in from the back of my stand opposite the feeder. My wife turned her chair around and used the green light and a scope now and then to see if she could get it. It wasn't long. We could hear it coming in from behind, but we couldn't see it. The walking sound stopped, and I figured it would be a good time to check to see if my son saw whatever was heading this way. He said that he had heard it, and it sounded like a bulldozer coming through, but he never saw it. He said the brush was moving and small trees were waving, but he couldn't put eyes on what caused it. The woods were dead silent for a good hour, not even a breeze. My wife and I both had the feeling of being watched, but we just brushed it off as a still night in the swamp. The silence was broken an hour later by the sound of a good-sized tree falling close behind us. That startled my wife and I, 
but I told her that it was likely just a rotted tree in the swamp falling. She said, but there's no wind, not even a breeze. Well, I shrugged my shoulders and I went back to monitoring the feeder. We started having sticks and clumps of mud thrown at us, and I messaged my son saying, that's real funny. And then he replied back, what's funny? They both chimed in, swearing that it wasn't them. They both stated that they were also experiencing strange things. My oldest son said something was circling around where he sat and was making all sorts of growls and snorts. My son in the stand said that someone was throwing things in the pond, and at one time a tree he was sitting in was whacked with something. I figured it was likely someone that knew we were hunting there and was messing with us, and I sent a message back to meet at the truck. We were obviously wasting our time trying to hunt that night. The next day, I went to top off the feeders and I put new SD cards in the cameras. I met with the property owner on my way out and I told him about the night before. He said there was a road on the north side of the pond 500 yards out and there was an animal rights activist that lived there and had given him trouble in the past by banging pans together while he was hunting. He said more than likely they saw our green lights and were messing with us. There was no animal activity at all on the cameras all week, not even a raccoon coming in for the corn. Well, I thought that was odd. Usually raccoons and possums make my cameras go crazy at night. I went to the property on Friday to top off the feeders and check what was going on with the cameras. The feeders were full and untouched. One camera was laying face down in the mud. I picked it up, cleaned it off, and put it back on the tree. The cameras were working because I was getting pictures of me loading the feeders. We elected to let the area rest over the weekend by not hunting, and I hoped the cameras would let me know when the area became active again, so we waited. A week passed, and I got no images, not a single image. Again, I knew the cameras were working, so I began to think the corn was bad. On Thursday, I began to replace the corn. The corn had not been touched, and then images of myself began popping up on my phone. Not one bit of this made any sense. I settled on the idea that the pigs had moved and were feeding in another area. My son and I decided to hunt the WMA two miles away. When we checked in at the wildlife management area, the attendant gave me a map and pointed out three locations where hunters seemed to be having good luck. My sons picked their spots and I got whatever was left. I was good with that. They were both carrying shotguns and I was carrying a 50 Hawken muzzleloader. Rifles weren't allowed and my 308 was going to have to stay home. The area I was to hunt had a large sinkhole in the woods that was sure to hold water or at least be swampy in the bottom. It should be a perfect spot for the hogs. I worked my way through the woods and through some thick briars and palmettos to a clearing just above the pit. I could see a small stream in the bottom. This spot gave me a good field of view, so I found a comfortable spot and I settled in. The stream I was hunting over lay between steep banks on each side, 
and I began to wonder how I would haul out my kill if I took one on the other side. I hoped there was a low spot downstream, but I'd have to wait and see. At that moment, I wanted to get quiet and start the hunt. The woods got real quiet and all my senses heightened, and then I caught movement in the ravine to my right. It appeared to be a man bent over a log and digging around a fallen tree. I stood to see better while wondering who in the hell would be in this swamp messing around in the mud. He was dressed in all brown clothing, and I thought it was stupid for him to be out here. I don't like wearing my glasses while I'm out hunting, but I put them on to better see what he was doing around that big tree. And that's when I saw that he wasn't wearing brown clothes. What I was seeing was either hair or fur. I had a small set of field binoculars in my jacket pocket, and I pulled them out and wiped the lenses on my t-shirt, and I got a better look. Sure enough, it was a Florida skunk ape. It must have been digging for grubs around the log. He looked similar to the creature I saw years ago, but not as tall, and its color was lighter. I couldn't make out the eye color, but I could see a human-looking face. He had no idea that I was sitting a hundred yards away up a bank watching him. For twenty minutes I watched while he did his thing. I didn't feel that I was in any danger. He would occasionally look around and sniff the air, and then he would go back to moving logs around and digging. I had good brush cover, and I figured my best bet was to stay put until it either came toward me or moved off. To my great relief, it began moving away, continuing to look and dig around fallen wood, and I took that opportunity to slowly retreat back toward my truck. I couldn't help but think how aggressive the northern squatch was, and I didn't want to see if this one had the same temperament. I went home with my two sons empty-handed that day. I never said a word about what I saw. Several weeks later, games started showing up on the cameras again, and it seemed as if everything was back to normal, and we hunted it without incident. I'm thinking that these animals have some sort of migrating pattern. I'm not sure, but I hope to never see one again. The End was that a good email or what? This guy's a wildlife officer. He's a wildlife officer, and in the 90s, he walks right up on a bank face-to-face with a Sasquatch. He gets away. He tells his boss. His boss says, don't worry about it. We're going to have a team come in and take care of this. Now, I wonder what that team did. Wouldn't y'all love to know what that team did? You think it went in and killed it? Or do you think it went in and captured it? You think it's in some kind of laboratory somewhere? Or maybe they didn't catch it at all. Who knows? But these stories where these, quote, teams come in and take care of these problems, they're so enigmatic and mysterious that they always perk my imagination. That's why I love doing these Steve Lilly stories, because I kind of get to be, while I'm writing it, I kind of get to be one of those guys. It's, It's real mysterious and intriguing. I love, I love the idea of that. This was a great story, sir. I really appreciate you sending it. I, uh, I've been looking at it for a while, and I'm just glad I finally got to pull it up and do it. So that's the only story we're going to have in this podcast. It's going to be about 30 minutes long. I think that's enough. Plus, my voice is wearing out, y'all. 
It's wearing out, but it's coming back. It's getting better. It's getting better. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys on the next podcast. See you next time.